Father, we thank you again for the freedom that is ours today to sit here, to open your word, and to learn from you. Would you, by your spirit, be our instructor that all other voices and faces will disappear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for this privilege of being with you. It's always lovely to come back to Australia. Uh, even though I've lived away from this country for many years, it's still my heart place. People ask you, where is your heart home? And it's Australia. What would you hope to gain from the reading of Third John? It's one of, two of the, uh, one of the two shortest letters in the New Testament. And it may arguably be one of the most neglected. Gresham Mason, a professor at Princeton many years ago, he commented on this epistle and he, 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 he spoke about this epistle as being from John, of course, who's referred to as the Apostle of Love. He said, Despite its individual address and private character, 3 John is not an ordinary private letter. Like all the books of the New Testament, it has a message for the entire church. The devout reader rises, he says, from the perusal of it with a more steadfast devotion to the truth and a warmer glow of Christian love. Now, we're currently in the season of school and university examinations. Well, 3 John is going to put each of us through an examination. This is not so much a, knowledge of our, a test of our knowledge, but rather it's a test to see if the Word of God is making an impact on your life, an impact on my life. A test to see if we are walking in the truth and living in love. And you've looked at this. He keeps this theme running. Well, Gaius was a man who walked in truth. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And John refers here to the elder, uh, himself as the elder. And in this third passage, he says, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, this may be one of the three Gaiuses mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, although Gaius was a common name like John. The apostle obviously has a sincere love for and attachment to his friend Gaius. But their relationship was not founded upon some common social interest. It was founded upon the truth. And they have come to deeply value and appreciate each other based on their common faith in Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. Same as us. This is a rich Christian fellowship. Most Sunday mornings, wherever I am, regardless of where I am in the world, I receive a text from a friend. He says something like this, good morning, brother. Today is the day I pray for you. I'm praying for you and your family, that God will bless your heart and mind as you seek him with all your heart. I'm praying for the work that he's placed before you, for clarity and vision and endurance and patience. I pray that the seeds are being planted and fertilized and watered, that fruits being evident. May the Holy Spirit make clear and empower our steps as his witnesses. I get that kind of note every Sunday. This man would not, under normal circumstances, be a friend to me. 
He's a well-respected, brilliant medical doctor whose specialty I can't even pronounce. Cardiac cardiac electrophysiology and bioethics, whose research includes the genome and all associated ethics that are associated with that. It simply boggles my mind what he does, what he thinks about. In other words, he moves in circles well outside my league. Yet he is not merely an acquaintance. He's a close, trusted, long-term, many-year deep friend. Now, the Christian love and fellowship enjoyed by John and, and Gaius is based on their common faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know much about it, but we do know that it, it, it is this message, this truth, this reality that they have discovered in Christ that holds their friendship tight and firm. It dissolved all the normal barriers that would exclude the possibility of a close friendship and fellowship. And so this indicates to us that Christian fellowship transcends all the usual barriers of race and gender and social status. And we are bound together by our common adoption into the family of God. Gaius was John's good friend, and they walked together, and Gaius walked in the truth. And it's out of that friendship that he received prayer for his prosperity. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, what is this? The prosperity gospel. No, is the point of Jesus' life for you and for me to become healthy, wealthy, and wise? No. No. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him, let her take up their cross daily and follow me. And John writes, Gaius, I pray that you may prosper. Indeed, that you may be prosperous physically as you are spiritually. What a wonderful thing to say about someone. I wish that you could be as strong in body as you obviously are spiritually. We take such pains to take care of our physical bodies. That's important. That's appropriate. Physical health enables us to serve God in ways that we may not be able to do were we unwell. But I don't think I've ever heard someone say, Peter... I pray that your physical health and general situation in life will, be, will, will match the level of your spiritual condition. I don't think I have ever heard that. I pray that your circumstances in life were as robust and were as, as, as vigorous as your spiritual life. A question to ask myself, if self, if your physical appearance reflected your spiritual state, what would you look like? Would you be robust? Would you be a strong individual, sturdy on your feet? Or would you be weak and barely able to move? This is a man whose life exhibited spiritual health. Gaius' soul prospers. Why? Because he's walking in the truth. Oh, on the other hand, it's so easy to be envious of the success of others in life and in ministry and in families and in marriages. The scriptures assure us 
of our charge as Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and pray for the well-being of others, esteeming others better than, than yourself. That's what John is doing here. He desired and, and here he prays for the very best for Gaius. That must surely be a challenge to pray that it will go well for others in their lives and marriages and family situations, even when it may not be going well in ours. Well, Gaius received prayer for prosperity. He also received appreciation for his testimony. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, John writes, walk in truth. And these Christian brothers, they came, they reported what they observed in the life of Gaius as a man who walked in truth. He didn't even know us from a hole in the ground. And he gave to us, he cared for us, he was hospitable to us. Perhaps they carried this letter to John. And perhaps they were, as a consequence, rejected by Diotrephes. John is sometimes referred to, as I said, as the apostle of love. He rejoiced in this good testimony of Gaius given by others. It's the pastor's supreme concern. And John was a pastor. The pastor's supreme concern with this warm, authentic pastoral heart to help the local body of Christ know the truth and then live the truth that they know. This is the dynamic. It's unique to Christians. It doesn't happen in the Hindu faith. It doesn't happen among the Buddhists. It doesn't happen. There's a fellowship. There's a camaraderie. It's an undeniable affection that exists between fellow believers. You know, Americans can be rather demonstrative in showing their affection to one another. And I have Australian blood running through my veins. Well, when we first arrived in America and the the first time the pastor greeted me with a hug, I froze on the spot. I freely now give hugs to my brothers. And I notice that a lot of you do too. But then in India, my Christian brothers will take my hand and stand together for a group photo. They hold my hand. It's their way of showing affection. It's their way of, of, part of their culture. I try not to show those photos in the law reports. But in Nepal, there are specific titles of address that are very important to them. That came home to me when I was thanking a young man who was helping us with technology on these online classes that we were teaching. And I said, thank you so much, Pawan Bai. Bai means young brother. He said to me later, Peter, thank you so much. Peter, Bai, thank you so much for calling me Bai, younger brother. No, he didn't call me Bai, he called me Daju. That means older brother. These are statements of, of affection, statements of respect. This is a man here, this man, this Gaius, who who is is someone who is showing, being shown affection by John. Affection for his life, for his attitudes. In the church of Jesus Christ, we're a family. All families are the same, aren't they? We love each other, we display our love for each other in varieties of ways. Sisters and brothers, 
It's for the long haul. And none of us is perfect. We have agreements. We have disagreements. It's part of living in families. It's part of living in the family of God. We can rub each other the wrong way. Or is this doesn't happen here. You may remember the old adage, to live, a love, a live above with saints we love, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's quite another story. As Christians, we respect and love one another because that's the defining characteristic of God's children. We know we have an altogether different pedigree from the one that we had before we were brought into the household of God. Brand new. Titus speaks of that. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hateful to one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we used to be just like the world. Used to be envious and jealous and covetous and hateful of others, but we are not like that anymore, he said. That's who we were. That's not who we are. And if we really love one another in the truth, we now pray for the fruitful work of righteousness and blessing in the lives of fellow believers. And we seek to live in unity. And to peacefully resolve our relational tensions with grace and understanding and with forgiveness and with humility with the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We're not just a cluster of individuals randomly gathered from society and thrown together as Mueller Community Church. No, we, we view each other with an, in, with an eternal perspective. Something even more significant than the natural physical affection often than we have with our own earthly bloodline brothers and sisters. So guys received prayer for prosperity, appreciation for his testimony, and then he received commendation for his generosity. In verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. You've borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake. ESV says, for the sake of the name, taking nothing from the Gentiles, the non-believers. What impressed John was not simply that Gaius knew the truth, but that he followed the truth. He lived it. He had a consistent life. He walked in truth. He was generous in his giving, an additional expression of Christian love. So why would he do that? Why would he be so generous to these strangers, those he's not met before, may not see again this side of eternity? The guys had the answer. He said, they're my brothers. We stand together, unified in Christ, and they are engaged in the work of ministry. One of the signs that a person has really been genuinely touched by the hand of God is that their wallet loosens up. He was generous. It indicated the state of his heart. Their giving becomes generous, gracious, cheerful, 
Second John issued a warning about showing hospitality to false teachers because you might simply give tacit agreement to their false teaching. But now in this letter, he's saying, no, you must give to those who serve the gospel. Give to those who serve Christ, support them, encourage them. And he's commended for showing hospitality to these strangers who taught the word of God faithfully. The Didache was a a kind of first century church manual. It warned against the hospitality of giving someone hospitality for, for more than three days. You need to talk to Barry and Sandy. They've had me for two weeks. Christians in Moldova, they cared for me in their homes over the years. And there were times when I had to travel three days in a train after being there with them and they gave me. You know what they gave me? They didn't didn't just give me the warmth of their homes and their friendship, but they made me sandwiches for the train. You know what they gave me? They gave me fat slabs of lard between two pieces of bread. I was so humbled, so grateful because they gave me their best and they gave me all they had. That's the kind of thing he's talking about here. Jesus said, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. The disciples said, Lord, we don't remember any of that. He said, as much as you've done it under one of these, the least of mine, you've done it to me. And so here is Gaius doing these things and he treats them as if he were to treat Jesus. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, she said, you can, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Christian love is a self-giving love. Christ modeled it for us. And it says here that they set out for his sake, for the sake of the name. The name, Christ, because of Christ, they elevated his name in all that they did. There were some who, like Gaius, stayed at home to support. There are others who went. And the motive is giving here is for the sake. Literally, it's for the name's sake. Back in the Old Testament, there was a a word for God. It has this big name, another one of those names I can't really say very well. But it's ineffable tetragrammaton. They would never say the name of God. They just had these letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And when the, the, the Hebrew scribe were to write the letters, they wrote them with a pen. And when they had finished writing the name of God with the pen, they threw it away. In fact, they would do it with each letter and they would throw it away. When the scribe changed the pen, continued with another, they regarded this name with such reverence that the scribes changed their garments before they wrote the sacred name. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The name occurs twice, which would have required two changes of clothes and four pens to execute. Well, you say, that's bondage. I guess so. But you know what? That's reverence. Reverence for God. Reverence for his name. They went out in the name of Christ. The apostle says, God has highly exalted his name. It's Christ, that's the name. And concern for his name was the underlying motive for missionary work in the first century. It ought to be the underlying reason for our work today. John Stott once said, 
It was primarily a jealousy for the name of God, a conviction that he should not be denied what is rightly his, that should be the great motive for missions. We're commissioned to take his truth to the ends of the earth. And we declare it among the nations. The psalmist says, his wonders we declare among all peoples. And Scottish preacher P.T. Forsyth, writing a long time ago, he said, the mainspring of mission is not pity but faith, not so much the pity of perishing sinners as faith and zeal for the church rights of Christ. So we go first and foremost, not for the sake of people, but for the sake of our God who sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty and the punishment, to take the shame and the guilt of your sin and mine. So that he would then be spoken of and told to the world, to the nations, to the ends of the earth until the end of the age. And they would come to know him and they would worship him and glorify him. We go because he desires and he deserves their worship. And by his hospitality and generosity, Gaius became a partner in the ministry. Well, let's skip to Diotrephes. He, was exclu- he exuded, exuded worldly ambition. His behavior gave evidence of his spiritual condition. His behavior gave evidence of his spiritual condition. I wrote to the church, Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, doesn't receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds. I'll bring it up. I'll talk about it. Pratting against us, speaking foolishly with malicious words, in other words, are not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren, and he forbids those who are putting them out. Uh, he, he forbids those who would receive them, and he's putting them out of the church. This Christian's behavior either gives support or, and, 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 and credence to what the person believes, or their behavior calls into question what they claim to believe. So Diotrephes was censored for his slander. He was chastised for his cold shoulder of resisting and rejecting. And he was condemned for his excommunicating these people. This is the first example in the New Testament church of a church boss. Someone who tries to run the church but has no authority to. He may have been an elder or a deacon, perhaps a pastor, we don't really know, I don't think. But it was someone who conceived his role as that of telling everybody else in the church what to do. Are you one of them? Am I one of them? Now, the early church apparently had some kind of membership role. If Diotrephes didn't like someone, he would just scratch their name off the list and put them out of the church. John objects, and John indicates here that Diotrephes was guilty of of several particular wrong attitudes and actions, slandering the apostle, prating, talking foolishly against him with evil words. He refused the authority of the apostles. The apostles in the church had a unique situation. They were to lay foundations of the church. They were given the authority to settle all questions within the church. And this, this, it's, it's this apostolic word that's passed along to us in the New Testament and which is why the New Testament is so authoritative for Christians. So here is a man not only disregarded 
disregarding the authority of the Apostle John, but also speaking badly against him and slandering, saying evil things. The most serious problem Diotrephes had was he put himself first. In Colossians chapter 1.18, we read, And he is the head of the body, meaning Christ, the church, head of the church, at the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. What did the hymn say? That we echo the eminence of God. We worship God. None of us has the eminence. None of us has the preeminence. He wanted the place that's reserved for Christ. He loved to be first, which is a dead giveaway that he was acting in the flesh. And this is always the philosophy of the flesh. Me first. And he was robbing the Lord Jesus of his prerogative. Why? Because he wanted power and control. I remember a pastor telling me in California years ago of a man who came into his office, had a check that he'd written out. At that time, it was a lot of money. It was $10,000. He placed it on the desk of the pastor, and he said, Now, I want to be a deacon. The pastor picked up the check. He tore it in pieces. He put it on the table. He says, Don't you ever come into my office again with such a request. Oh, no. Christ's is the preeminence. He was wanting to rob Christ of his prerogative. He gives a warning. He says, don't imitate what is evil, but do what is good. He who does good is of God. He who does evil doesn't even know God. I want to refer quickly. I know I have to finish. I want to refer here now to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is where the apostle speaks the word of God who tells the people the way they live will participate to the way in which they worship. And they were worshiping with hypocrisy. Why? Because their active worship concealed their passive repentance. He was telling them, he's telling us that treating people well and loving people well and with genuine Christian love, beautifies our worship of him. You love people? If you love the truth, you'll love people. You live with integrity. John affirms, recognized his good reputation, assessed his conformity to the truth, and affirmed by the apostle himself. He says, you know, I'd love to come and I'd love to write more, but I've already written a book. I've already written three letters. He also knew, I think, it was so much better to look him in the face and say, let me tell you why I love you. And let me tell you what I struggle with. And will you help me love you as I should? And we'll love one another. And we'll live for the glory of God. Isn't it lovely to be in the church? Hey, it's not like the football club, is it? No. We love each other. We serve God together. We have this privilege and this honor of living together and dying together. Because all of life is a part of what it is to be his and to be his church and to be on the road and on the pathway to his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in you. We delight ourselves in God.
We worship you this day. We thank you for all that you are to us, all that you mean to us. And we ask, Father, that your word will take root in my heart first and in each of our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great.